deciding, you know, hey, let's do something about this, you know, quitting my job and, you know, setting a goal to do a 1500 mile triathlon on this leg that I knew wouldn't be able to take me, you know, to the length that I wanted to and to really show people that, you know, people with disabilities want to set the same type of goals, have the motivation, have the will to do these incredible things just like everyone else, but we're being limited not by our disability, but by the access to what we need and by our health policies. That's really what disables us. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned performance coach to founder CEOs and avid Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Nicole Verkylan. At age 10, Nicole made the difficult decision to amputate her left leg to save her life from bone cancer. She would then spend the next 16 years fighting an outdated healthcare system to get access to the prosthetic technology she needed to be physically active. Finally, in 2017, Nicole had said enough is enough and decided to quit her job to engage full-time in political activism and advocacy. What transpired next is nothing short of inspirational. She took on a 1,500-mile triathlon, swimming, biking, and running down the Pacific coast to advocate and, ed- and educate others on the barriers individuals like her face to living full, healthy lives. She called her journey Forest Stump. Today, Forest Stump is a nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to raising the standard of care for all amputees. In this interview, we discuss how Nicole dealt with cancer growing up, what it's like living with a prosthetic, her epic Forest Stump triathlon, and goals and aspirations for the Forest Stump nonprofit. And so, without further ado, my interview with Nicole Verkylan. So, as I like to do with most of my episodes, um, I want to start this one off at the beginning. Uh, so where did you grow up? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in uh, Minnesota. I was kind of born and raised in the Twin Cities up until fourth grade, and then ended up moving down to Rochester, Minnesota uh, in fifth grade. And that was the year that I was diagnosed with bone cancer and was really lucky in the sense to be relocated uh, you know, at the Mayo Clinic, you know, one of the most renowned, uh, you know, hospitals in the country and was set up with some really great oncologists there. So yeah, Midwest, uh, born and raised. Okay. Did, did you grow up in a family that like encouraged an active lifestyle? Was that, has that always been a part of your life? Yeah, definitely. Um, my family has always been super active. My dad, um, he's really big into inline skating and uh, does a marathon every year. It's called um, the North Shore Inline Skating Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. And so definitely grew okay. up with my dad kind of really encouraging you know, athleticism and activity that way. I mean, even before my amputation was super athletic, you know, played soccer, softball, you know, all kinds of sports and activities, you know, in my school. I remember, uh, you know, we would be doing the, uh, you know, races in elementary school. And I just remember this one time we were doing, I think it was like a mile long run or something. 
And I was just so competitive that I ended up running out of my shoes, but didn't stop to put my shoes back on and just kept running and came in <laughs> you know, either first or second among the girls or something like that. And so that's always been something that's been, you know, a part of my identity from a young age is being an athlete, being really active, especially being in Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota is a very active state, uh, a lot of things to do outside, you know, swimming, hiking. Uh, biking, uh, just all kinds of stuff. And so that mm -hmm. was really instilled in me from a very young age. Awesome. Any, any siblings? Yeah. So, well, my parents are divorced and I, I grew up uh, mainly in Minnesota with my dad and my stepmom. And I have a little brother and sister uh, within that family, Kylie and Simon. Uh, we've got uh, eight and nine years apart. So it was, I was the older sibling kind of raising, you know, helping to raise them in some sense. And right. then my uh, mom actually lived in Michigan with my stepdad and I have three older stepbrothers, uh, Matt, Tim and Joe. And so it's kind of a, a big family in, yeah. in one way. Um, you know, I'm the oldest in one family and the youngest in the other, uh, which makes it uh, pretty fun. But yeah, uh, very active uh, with my you know, siblings and you know, having somewhat of a competitive nature, just, you know, wanting to be able to keep up um, and make sure that I could be there for them, especially with Kylie and Simon, you know, as they were young, you know, running around, playing on the trampoline, you know, going <laughs> to the pool and swimming, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And what were some of the, like some of the sports or activities that you enjoyed playing the most when you were growing up? Yeah, I would say, you know, prior to my amputation, um, really all types of activities. And after that amputation happened, it was definitely very challenging mentally, you know, physically to kind of get back into sport. And my parents really encouraged me to, you know, get back into it, but it took, it took a lot of, you know, kind of that support system uh, to be able, you know, to have someone push you to do it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the first things they did was enroll me in soccer. And this was probably maybe six months after my amputation, you know, I was out on the soccer field playing sports, uh, you know, mainly was, you know, I played goalie, but then I also had the chance to, you know, get out there and, and run around on the field. But that was, you know, it was difficult because it's one of the sports that really requires, you know, foot-eye coordination. And, right. at, you know, looking back on it, sometimes I think it was a mean joke to throw me in like that at the very beginning. But at the same sense, it was really important because, I started to really develop, you know, better proprioception with my prosthesis to understand, you know, am I touching the ball? Am I kicking the ball? You know, and all of that. So that was right. really important. Um, but after that, you know, I kind of drifted away from soccer and really my true love for sport, at least growing up in high school, middle school was softball. Um, you know, I felt like that was a sport that I felt like I wasn't very limited in with my prosthesis, um, especially, you know, from batting, I have my prosthesis on my left leg. So that's, uh, and I bat right-handed. So that was, you know, the leg that I would step with and not necessarily mm -hmm. kind of the power leg. Um, and so it, that worked out really well. I played first base, um, which also worked, you know, really well from that standpoint. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of something that I, I had dug into, you know, in, in middle school and high school. And it really wasn't until college that I got into, you know, running and seeing that as a sport that I could do. Okay. And so, um, how old were you when you got diagnosed with cancer? 
Yeah, well, originally they found the tumor when I was eight years old. I was actually on my way to a softball game and I was running late um, and my mom had dropped me off. And so I kind of grabbed all my stuff and was running down this hill and I ended up tripping and falling and spraining my ankle. And it, I was in a lot of pain. And so they decided, you know, we should get an x-ray of this just to make sure, you know, she hadn't broken anything. And we did the x-ray and that's when we found this egg-sized tumor in my tibia bone um, in my left leg, in my lower left leg, which was, you know, obviously a complete surprise. Had no idea that this tumor was inside me. I wasn't having any, you know, pain or uh, side effects or anything like that, that would have allowed me to know that there was something wrong. Right. Um, and at that time we were living in the Twin Cities and uh, somewhat more kind of in a rural area there uh, and went to kind of just a regular clinic, ended up having a biopsy. They sent those uh, results out to, you know, all different types of oncologists across the country. They came back and it was, you know, kind of split 50-50 um, based on whether they thought it was malignant or benign. And at that point, we were just advised to kind of watch it which is really interesting looking back on it now that that, that was their decision. I mean, I think things right. have really progressed and a better understanding of osteosarcoma as a very rare and aggressive form of bone cancer. Um, so that was really kind of what I mentioned earlier, our move to Rochester, Minnesota. My dad got a new job uh, down there. And that was really a miracle in a sense because I was, uh, I had my care reestablished with a primary care doctor, Dr. Starr, at the Mayo Clinic and, you know, we're going through my medical history and that's when the kind of tumor came up and she was, you know, immediately on it, you know, said we need to do another biopsy, you know, this isn't something that we should ignore. Um, and so that I started, you know, new school, new kid in fifth grade at the school and uh, went and had my biopsy in September um, of, that, of that year. Um, the results came back and they said, and, you know, this is malignant. This is a rare form of bone cancer called osteosarcoma. And, you know, the statistics there uh, aren't very good um, in terms of, um, you know, diagnosis and um, being able to live through it, um, especially without amputation. And so, you know, immediately started chemotherapy, started chemotherapy on October 31st on Halloween. And I remember getting okay. my first chemo treatment in the hospital. I dressed up as a jailbird with a ball <laughs> connected to my ankle. Um, and, you know, obviously that was kind of how I was feeling in the moment of being kind of stuck in the hospital, having to go through this. But, um, you know, had really great support system uh, with my oncologist, really empowering me, even though I was only 10 years old, um, to be involved in my care, to understand you know, the risks associated with the cancer and to understand what my treatment plan needed to be. And uh, they recommended amputation. And it was a very difficult decision to, to come to terms that that was going to need to happen. And, you know, very emotional, very roller coaster. You know, one minute you would be accepting of the fact that this would happen. And then the next minute you would just be in tears or I would just be in tears, you know, knowing that that was going to happen. And as I mentioned, my parents were divorced and they were, you know, split on the issue um, in terms of what they wanted to do. Um, and my mom was in favor of the amputation and my dad was opposed to it. And so that was also a challenging aspect, you know, having, uh, being 10 years old, being kind of stuck in between your parents right. and having to kind of 
coach them through it as well and say, no, I'm okay. Like, I believe I'll be okay with an amputation. And so, yeah, started chemo in October. Uh, the chemotherapy, the tumor wasn't really responding at all to the chemo. And so that's when we decided to do the amputation right away. Um, and that happened on January 21st in 2002, which actually was Martin Luther King Day. Um, and so I feel very special to be connected to that day um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, freedom, freedom from cancer. But yeah, it was very, you know, very, the timeline was very quick and it was, it was a lot to adjust to in that, in that short amount of time. But um, I would say within probably a month of that amputation um, was on my first prosthesis, uh, kind of walking and um, getting back into things. I mean, it, it was slow to progress. It wasn't like I was up and running on it. Um, you know, you start off with a wheelchair, you know, then you go to crutches and a cane and then slowly make your way to being able to, you know, be on the prosthesis without uh, any, you know, assistive device. And for me, it's a below knee amputation. So I still had my knee and I had a great surgeon, great doctor, and overall um, was able to re rehabilitate from that perspective um, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. It's crazy that the, um, that those, those first doctors told you to just like watch it and just kind of see where it goes like watch it until until what you know right yeah and you know when I think back on that it was really interesting because things had just kind of gone back to normal um and honestly my parents we kind of just you know it was like oh yeah Nicole had a tumor at one point and we had just moved on like it wasn't something that was uh constantly in our mind that we needed to watch or to address and, you know, knowing what I know now about osteosarcoma and seeing so many people that I've followed on Instagram or in other ways that have passed away, I mean, it's, it's very, um, it's a very serious uh, cancer to have. And it's something that you want to address right away. And so I'm, I'm glad that they've made a lot of advancements, but it's crazy to think that, if, you know, if I had stayed in the Twin Cities, it's likely that I might not be here right now. So I'm really grateful to the Mayo Clinic to having having been so aggressive with it and, um, you know, really encouraging amputation. And that's a thing that I see a lot among the, you know, osteosarcoma community or just with people in general, there's this immense fear of amputation. And of course that's natural. I mean, you don't know what am I gonna be able to do after amputation? Um, and so I've done a number of different consultations with people, you know, as they're going through the process to encourage them to have amputation, you know, that they'll be able to live a full life after the fact. And that's the part and kind of the fire that's driven within me to fight for better access to prosthetic technology because individuals, you know, going through this um, and having to make a decision to amputate, I want them to know that they're going to be supported on the other side and that they're going to be able to get back to the activities they wanted to do. And it makes it really hard to make that case when I have to say, well, you know, it's going to be really challenging for you to get this covered by insurance and you're not going to be able to get access to the prosthetic to allow you to be physically active. I mean, going into it and saying that, you know, that's not a great case for it. And of course, people are going to, you know, I would 
I wouldn't say that my life has been, you know, ruined or anything like that from my amputation. And it was, of course, you know, the best decision possible. But we need to do better for this community and we need to provide equal access to physical activity and to the technology that's needed so that someone after they have an amputation can live a full and healthy life. Right. And so what were the, like the factors that you and your parents were considering as to whether or not to decide to like amputate the leg? Yeah. So, I mean, it really came down to the numbers um, in terms of the potential recurrence of cancer and uh, kind of the fatality rates. Uh, basically, we're, we were going over a, various different options, different surgeries that they could do. Um, one of them being, you know, trying to remove the tumor um, and doing kind of a limb salvage type surgery, which uh, many people have done. Uh, it's somewhat of a Frankenstein type approach where they actually remove part of the bone and then replace it with another bone um, on your opposite uh, leg. Um, and but the a the success rate with that in terms of the limb itself is very limited. And I know many people who have gone through limb salvage surgery only to have you know gone through 20 plus surgery since then because it keeps breaking or it's you know wow. in pain. Yeah. And eventually, you know, they amputate. And after the amputation, they have a significant improvement in quality of life. Um, but the other part there was that with that type of surgery, the recurrence of the cancer was much higher. I think it was something like 20% chance versus amputation had a basically 0% chance. I mean, obviously it wasn't zero, but very, very small. And so that, you know, mm -hmm. to us was, it was very clear, like, I'd rather have, you know, almost 100% chance of living a really great life than having the cancer come back. And with that type of cancer, if the cancer were to come back, uh, the biggest spot that it would come back is your lungs. And once it hits your lungs, um, you know, the, it's not good. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's been something that I've had. You know, I've been in remission ever since, which has been great, but I go in for, you know, I was going in for yearly checkups. Now it's, you know, every maybe five years to have um, chest x-rays, um, uh, all that kind of stuff, as well as, you know, heart scans and everything, because the chemotherapy that you go through, I mean, it just, you know, is, uh, is devastating to your body. It's absolutely, um, it tears apart so much. And one of the big things that I experienced was, um, some hearing loss as a result of the chemotherapy, uh, as well as uh, damage to your heart. And so that's a big thing that I've been kind of following up um, as a result of the adriamycin, which is the chemotherapy uh, that they use. And another reason why it's so important to stay active and to have that aerobic exercise, you know, to keep my heart healthy as a result of that. Right. And so how long did it take before you could um, walk on your own again and also start playing with kids your age again? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the timeline. Like, honestly, I feel like I only had 10 or so physical therapy appointments, which looking back on it now, you know, it was probably like a weekly thing or, or twice a week type of thing. But looking back on it now, I mean, that is not enough physical therapy to, you know, learn how to walk again. And that was basically the extent of what they taught me. It was like, okay, here's how to walk. You know, we didn't go through running. We didn't go through, you know, other types of sports or, you know, um, lateral movements or, you know, all that kind of stuff that's so important to, you know, getting back into it. And I would say that from the very get-go, 
um, it was challenging to get to the point where I could be at the same level as my peers. And that was mainly because of the prosthesis that I was provided. You know, it didn't have a lot of energy return. It was very stiff. Um, it hurt sometimes when I ran. Um, I mean, even still to this day, that's an issue. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, the other part was that it's not waterproof. And, you know, even still to this day, you know, 18 years later, you know, waterproof limbs aren't covered by insurance, you know, running blades aren't covered by insurance, you know, what I needed at that age as a child to really be at the same level as my peers and to, you know, get back into sports with them was not provided and is still not provided. And so that was definitely some limiting factors. But I think that is what drove me to push myself so hard because I never wanted to be, you know, limited. I didn't want to be viewed as um, a person with the, you know, I guess lesson. Um, and now I'm more comfortable with, you know, saying that I, I have a disability, but there was a long time where I didn't even want to associate myself with my leg or even be known as having a disability. And, you know, especially growing into, you know, my teenage years would always wear pants, never wore, wore shorts in the summer um, because I, I found that it was the undue, you know, the undeserved attention I felt. It was very anxiety inducing, having people stare at you, ask questions, and even just, um, you know, make comments that made you feel less than or that you weren't capable, just kind of assumptions about your own ability. Um, right. So that was something definitely kind of had to deal with um, growing up and throughout the time, and especially going through high school, um, middle school. We, you know, being in gym class, I constantly broke my prosthesis. I mean, it just was not built to withstand someone being physically active. And that was a constant setback because every time your foot broke, you'd have to wait a few weeks to get a new foot. And you can't run on a, on a foot that's broken. You know, you can basically walk, but that's time that you could be training. That's time you could be playing with your friends. So really our system right now is just not set up to support athletic or uh, physically active amputees or individuals with disabilities that want to be, that want to exercise. Right. And so I guess to follow up and expand on that, it sounds like the, uh, I guess, prosthesis did have an impact for you socially as well. Yeah. I mean, definitely, if you look at the spectrum of if I didn't have a prosthesis, um, like no prosthesis at all would have been a huge impact to not have that. So having the basic level of what I had um, did have, you know, an impact positively to be able to do what I could with it. Um, again, I was pushing it to its very limits to the point it would break. So what was provided was not enough. Um, but having it from a, I mean, there's just so many aspects to think about when you lose a limb, how it impacts you, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, you know, body image, self-confidence, you know, all of that is, are things that individuals with disabilities, you know, struggle with over the course of their lifetime in one sense or another, and everyone's kind of on a different timeline. Uh, for me, it took many, many years to become confident in myself, especially my, you know, kind of self-body image. Um, you would never show someone my leg or my stump unless it was my, you know, close family and friends. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, I have no, you know, I don't care at all who looks at it or, you know, I'm proud of, of who I am. And it's, it, I think it was really the, 
involvement in sport that got me to that point to, to feeling, um, you know, confident with myself. But yeah, it definitely has an impact on you in terms of how you feel. And I think it was really not until college that I actually got the opportunity to kind of help design my own prosthesis. And up until that point, uh, anytime I got a prosthesis, it was kind of like they decided what you needed and then they just gave it to you. And I wasn't really involved in the process at all. But then I got a new prosthesis when I moved to Michigan. Uh, I was at school there at the University of Michigan and my prosthetist uh, asked me, you know, what do you want this to look like? And, you know, do you want it to look aesthetic, you know, kind of like skin colored, or do you want it to be something unique? And I was like, wow, you know, I had never been given this chance or this opportunity. And so I was super excited to, you know, do something personal and personalize it. So I ended up picking out a fabric that reminded me of Petoskey stones in Northern Michigan that I'd always look for as a kid in the water. And um, it's kind of like a black type material and put that on the outside of it. And I was super proud of it. And uh, that was really part of that, that growth for me of being okay with showing off my, my limb. And uh, I think the, you know, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan has been significant from uh, a disability perspective and also for amputees in particular being more confident uh, because there has been this transformation of respect and uh, admiration uh, towards people who uh, have prosthetics, which I think is absolutely amazing. And I think we need to continue that trend for other people who have varying disabilities, whether you have you use a wheelchair, whether you use an orthosis, uh, whether you use a cane because you have a visual impairment, whatever it may be, everyone deserves that same, you know, respect and uh, admiration as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's great. And so what's involved in terms of maintenance and upkeep of a prosthetic? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's the day-to-day -day stuff uh, in terms of you have, uh, you know, obviously it's interacting uh, with your limb. And so you, you sweat and have all those issues. So you have to constantly be cleaning your liners, cleaning your prosthesis, making sure that you're keeping up overall hygiene. Um, and then there's the other aspect of, uh, depending on how much time you, um, how much time it's been since your amputation, you know, keeping up with body weight fluctuations uh, throughout the course of the day or over the course of a year, depending on whether you gain weight, lose weight, um, you're constantly needing to kind of chase your socket in the sense of making sure that it's fitting properly. So you use, you know, different socks, um, different, they're called different ply socks. Um, or if you've significantly gained weight or lost weight, you might have to completely get a new socket. And so that requires you going into your prosthetist, um, doing uh, work to get a new socket where they literally, you know, hand cast your limb uh, in plaster and kind of build, you know, a plastic socket and then a carbon fiber socket from that. And the process of getting a prosthesis is very time intensive. It takes a lot. I mean, it takes at least five appointments, two hours each uh, for, you know, bare minimum to go through that process. Um, maybe for some people, it's a little less. For others, it could be definitely longer. I know for me, when we went through the process of making my first running blade after I got a grant, you know, it took quite a while. It took a few months, you know, to get it dialed in and to get it to be the right thing. Um, so yeah, you're going to have uh, various components on your prosthesis wear out. Um, it's made out of, you know, various materials like rubber and carbon fiber, 
um, and you know different plastics and uh, that kind of thing. And so those things wear out; they rust over time. And so you know the average lifespan they say is you know three to five years, but it really depends on how much you're using it, like anything else. Sure. Um, you know, if you think about it as, you know, an oil change on your car, it depends on how many miles you put on it. So same sort of thing uh, for me, but what I found because it was, I only had one prosthesis, um, provided by insurance. I found that it was breaking every six months. I mean, it was just not built to withstand the number of miles I was doing and just being super athletic and fit. You know, I walked to and from work every day. I was walking two and a half miles to work, two and a half miles home, and then I'd come home and go run, you know, anywhere between, you know, three to 10 miles almost every day uh, on a walking prosthesis, which was very painful, um, you know, kind of push through that. But yeah, it just depends. The maintenance um, process, I think some people are more involved in it than others. And I feel more amputees need to be more involved in their care and really paying attention to what's going on. Um, but yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff that someone may go through. Uh, a big part too, I would, would mention when I talked about kind of the fitting and uh, if, when your socket doesn't fit. Basically what happens is you end up getting sores on your leg and it's very painful. And so oftentimes you might have to go a day or a week or you know a month, depending on the issue that you have without your prosthesis on, which can be very debilitating um, physically and mentally and emotionally. I had an issue, you know, very athletic, very, um, you know, get all kinds of exercise. And because of that, I actually had lost a, a, just a few pounds, but my prosthesis wasn't fitting right and ended up having this major kind of bone bruise on my leg. And I ended up having to have it go like an entire week without my leg on. And it really brought me back to those moments of what it was like, you know, having the amputation and not being able to get around. And I mean, I can tell you it was, it was a, that week was very mentally draining. It was really hard. It was, you know, in some sense a depression. And so mm -hmm. that's a big part and a big element to it that I think just isn't addressed as much as it should be is kind of the mental health component of, you know, not being able to be mobile to our full capacity or our full potential. So um, yeah, that's, it's a constant um, flux of varying types of maintenance, whether it's maintenance from a, um, you know, componentry standpoint or maintenance from a, you know, self-care mental health perspective too. Right, right. And so how closely does um, a prosthetic mimic the natural motion of like a, of a human leg? Yeah, I mean, I think people's, perspective, especially based on a lot of um, what's been in the media, what people see on TV, what they see in movies, they assume that prosthetics are, you know, very bionic, cyborg-like, that they, you know, can fully replace um, and function just like your other body components. But that is absolutely not the case whatsoever. If I were to kind of hand my prosthesis to someone and have them check it out, they would A, be very startled at how heavy it is. I mean, it feels kind of like a, a brick in some sense. And B, mm -hmm. they would be um, very curious to find that there's absolutely no movement in the ankle and the toes. I mean, it's, it's a very rigid um, componentry. And of course, there's a little bit of flexion in the carbon fiber foot. Um, this is kind of my everyday walking foot. 
but it's not enough to really notice. And the difference there that I would say, when you're able to get something that is specifically designed to the type of activity you're doing, that's when you can really have breakthroughs, you right. know, positive breakthroughs in your mobility. And so something like my walking leg, it's great for walking. I love it. It provides just the right amount of energy return that I need and, you know, the gait that I need to walk. But for running, it's terrible. It hurts. It's, it's very heavy. It's uh, the impact I have when I, you know, land on that leg while running. It just sends, you know, a huge force up through my body. And, you know, it feels like kind of like a, running with a lead brick. But when I have my running blade, which is specifically designed for running, the amount of energy return is absolutely incredible. Like I notice it as soon as I have it on. Uh, it feels kind of like a little trampoline or a little pogo stick, you know, on your leg and you can actually mm -hmm. feel that return. But the thing is with the running blade is it's not built for walking. And uh, if you try and walk with it, you obviously you can make it work. You can make anything work, honestly, if you have to. I mean, I've seen people who had made a prosthesis out of a bucket and a piece of wood. I mean, humans are super resilient and make things work, but that doesn't mean that it's right. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to have uh, an impact on you long-term and uh, for your health perspective. And so if I were to run on or to walk on a running blade, I'd have major hip issues. Um, just the alignment and everything would just be totally out of whack and uh, end up causing a lot of back pain, which is exactly what I ended up experiencing as I started to do 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons on a walking leg, is that it basically um, tilted my pelvis to the point that I was in you know, severe back pain and was in physical therapy. I see, okay. And how, how heavy is the uh, prosthesis? Oh man, I should know how much it weighs. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I mean, it's probably a least like three three to five pounds depending on what kind of okay. you have but my running blade is a lot lighter um than my walking leg okay yeah and i was gonna ask about i mean i would imagine it must create some you know if you push it i guess past it so much some major imbalances in in the mm -hmm. body like you mentioned yeah, you notice right away, like if I were to run on my walking leg and, and versus my running blade, or even, you know, when I got my running blade for the first time and um, took videos of myself and shared it with my family and friends, you know, my dad called me right away and was like, wow, your gait looks amazing. It looks so balanced. It looks so even. And that's a really important part, uh, really important part of running because as you're running mile upon mile, I mean, you train you know, thousands of miles to, to do various races. You have to put in all those miles and every single mile that you're running on a gait uh, that's in balance is going to have an impact on your body. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really important to make sure that's dialed in. Otherwise, you're going to have, you know, overcompensation um, on various parts of your body. And I've definitely seen that with my right leg, um, you know, have hip pain, had back pain. Um, and one of the things that was very frustrating for me was, you know, hearing from my doctors, you know, hey, like, you got to be really careful about your knee, you know, but they would never provide a solution. They would always just say, like, you know, you got to look out for that knee, um, you know, you're going to hurt it long term type of thing. But then they would never say what we could do about it. So that was something that was really frustrating to me and why it's so important mm -hmm. to have a running blade that, it, you know, keeps you balanced. Right. 
And do you experience any specific pain uh, while running that's directly caused by having the prosthesis? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, um, it's a constant chasing of the fit of the socket and there are days that it really, really hurts and you just have to find another activity, you know, do some biking, do some other type of aerobic activity or, you know, try and kind of push through the pain um, depending on what you're feeling and making sure that you don't want it to get worse. But um, yeah, just the nature of running is really hard on the body. And so there's, uh, if you don't have a socket that fits well, that can be very, very painful on your limb and it's what creates sores. Um, Mm -hmm. So oftentimes I'll be putting, you know, various salve on my leg to make sure that the friction of running isn't, you know, hurting it. I mean, I would say the the same issues that, um, you know, long distance runners have with their toes, you know, with your toenail falling off or, right. um, you know, various sores that you get on your feet from uh, your shoes. It's like that, but it's exacerbated in the sense that um, you're putting all your body weight into that one spot, you know, over and over again. And it's just a lot more sensitive because the depending on the contact areas, you know, they weren't meant to support your full body weight, uh, very different than how your feet uh, were meant to be used. Mm -hmm. Right. And so at what point do you start competing in those 5Ks and 10Ks? Yeah, so I'm trying to think. I started running my, the summer after high school. You know, I was kind of done with softball. I was trying to figure out what was next for me, what I could get into. And I really started, you know, enjoying going on those kind of, um, there were short runs at that point, but something totally different that I hadn't been doing um, and really found kind of a meditate, meditative aspect to it. And then that year, you know, started college, my freshman at the University of Michigan, and it was that spring that I ended up doing my very first race or 5K race uh, with my friends, my girlfriends. It was called the Big House, Big Heart, where you run through the city of Ann Arbor and you were able to end on the, um, the field in the big house. So it was, I think there were like 10,000 runners or so there. And so that aspect of that community and just being part of this really big event was really exciting to me. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, like I feel like a runner. I want to keep doing this. So that summer, you know, went back home again and decided you know, I'm going to run a 5k every single day this summer and kind of got out my calendar and started checking them off one by one and you know just the aspect of having that consistency of running I really started to build up um, my ability and started to get faster and faster and so that uh, fall I went back to school raced in another my second 5k and ended up coming in first place uh, in my age group which was uh, that's awesome it was super exciting Um, so, you know, just kept doing those as, uh, kind of fun, you know, aspects of just staying in shape, you know, wanting to set bigger and bigger goals, started doing 10 Ks and then eventually set a goal to do a half marathon. And the process of training for that half marathon was extremely difficult. It had gotten to the point where the prosthesis that I had, like I said, you know, wasn't built to withstand even a 5k, let alone a half marathon. I was constantly breaking it. I had sores all the time just from the impact of the running. It felt like, you know, I would take a step forward and then I would take two steps back while training for this. And one of my friends who's a really good friend of mine was doing, we were doing uh, alongside each other and, you know, she doesn't have a disability. She's able-bodied and she started to really realize 
you know, what I was going through in that, um, in that time. And, you know, she was making all these gains and these, um, you know, aspects and putting in the training. And she saw that I was kind of just being left behind. And, um, you know, I ended up having to go through significant amounts of physical therapy because of the amount of miles I was putting in on this walking prosthesis. And I had developed a sacral torsion pelvic asymmetry, which is in huge amounts of back pain that was impacting my daily life or even my ability to work. You know, I was getting up in the morning, trying to put my socks on. I was just in tears, just in so much pain. And I'd go to work and I couldn't even sit down. I had to stand up and try and work at my desk that way because it was just so painful. Um, and it was really a problem. And it became the point to the point where I was starting to question, you know, is being an athlete for me? Can I keep doing these types of things? And also have, you know, a job and be able to be productive. Um, and so that's when I kind of really got frustrated with this whole system. You know, I've seen other people who had running blades. So I started talking to my prosthetist, you know, what can we do here? You know, there's got to be another option out there. Um, and, you know, I've seen people with running blades. I've seen people with other types of, you know, higher activity prosthetics. Like, we got to do something different. And so we ended up going through um, 26 appointments over the course of a year. And I ended up with the exact same prosthesis that I had for the past five years. And that was this moment of, um, I, to describe that moment, I mean, it was, there were so many different feelings. It was disappointment. It was, you know, fear of being able to, you know, get back to the same mobility that I once had. It was, you know, anger at the system. Um, but also in part of that too, was this aspect of wanting to do something more and wanting to take a really negative situation and turn it into something positive for myself and for other people. And that's really what ended up leading to, you know, starting for a stump, deciding, you know, hey, let's do something about this, you know, quitting my job and, you know, setting a goal to do a 1500 mile triathlon on this leg that, I knew wouldn't be able to take me, you know, to the length that I wanted it to and to really show people that, you know, people with disabilities want to set the same type of goals, have the motivation, have the will to do these incredible things, just like everyone else, but we're being limited, not by our disability, but by the access to what we need and by our health policies. That's really what disables us. Right. And so before we get into Forrest Stump, what, what did you do for work and well, like, what were some of the roles that you had? Yeah, so my role at the University of Michigan, I uh, was the assistant director of annual giving and alumni relations, um, really kind of focusing more in the fundraising space specifically, still focus on environmental and sustainability work and really connecting with the alumni of the school that were out there, you know, making change on climate change um, you know, various environmental programs. It was really exciting, really uh, great work and really connecting with our students there too, which was, was awesome. Um, and through that process, you know, I had the opportunity to lead the storytelling project to help honor the uh, anniversary, 200th uh, anniversary of the um, uh, school, the University of Michigan, which was founded in 1817. And also the, this kind of name change that we were going through. We were the School of Natural Resources and we trained to the School of Environment and Sustainability. And um, like any school, if you change your name, of course you have alumni who feel somewhat disconnected to this new change and we we're trying to keep everyone 
connected and feeling, um, you know, proud of the school. And so we went through the process of interviewing a lot of our alumni. And I think as part of just the nature of sustainability work, of climate change work, it takes a lot of innovative thinkers, entrepreneurial people who are willing to, you know, break the mold, challenge the status quo, and, uh, you know, work to create a better world. And so through that, I was really inspired by a lot of the alumni that I met and really, you know, started to understand all these different businesses and things that they were starting to help make a difference. And so it was really an interesting point in my life where it seems like everything was kind of coalescing at once where you know I was going through this really challenging experience of trying to you know do a half marathon and having my prosthesis break down and kind of hitting a wall uh, as part of our healthcare system while at the same time you know learning from all these entrepreneurial individuals who you know really inspired me to take action and to do more. Yeah and so has community service and like supporting the environment um, and all that and just kind of serving others more generally, like always been a theme throughout your life? Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, it's always been, I would say instilled in me through my parents in terms of giving back, especially for my mom, um, you know, very, very generous individual. Um, but I would say that the, you know, the con getting more involved in community service didn't really come until college. And it was really inspired by one of my roommates, um, uh, Megan, who inspired me to join her in a club called Circle K, which is the collegiate version, version of Qantas International. And through that, um, was part of that all four years, served many different leadership roles within the organization. You know, we had over 100 members, one of the largest Circle Ks in the country. So it really operated, you know, like a, a well-oiled machine. It was incredible to be part of it. But we did all types of community service as part of that. Um, we had a, a significant event called the 24-hour service day where people came together and did service for 24 hours. I led various alternative spring break trips to uh, Texas, New York, Colorado. You know, every spring break we would take that time and go serve at an organization that needed us. And it was really part of an organization that um, the University of Michigan called the Ginsburg Center that was focused on service learning and social justice. And so that was um, definitely part of uh, kind of what influenced me to where I'm at now. I've always kind of had this passion and, the, and this desire to give back and make an impact socially. Right. Yeah, that's, that's great. And so what was the, what was the driving force then behind your decision to leave uh, your alumni relations job and embark on the, the forest dump journey? Yeah. So, you know, at that point there was this, you know, kind of itch and um, push within myself to kind of break out of my comfort zone and, you know, do something different than what I had done before, uh, especially something that was more entrepreneurial and kind of connected to uh, finding what my purpose was. And I think a lot of people kind of go through that aspect of trying to find their purpose in life and, you know, marrying their talents to you know, a way to make an impact. And for me, that was, you know, through the fundraising background I had, this marketing background I had, um, and also the commitment to kind of athleticism and being an athlete. Um, but then also this aspect of having a disability and understanding that, 
you know, it's, it seemed that this wasn't being talked about. This wasn't a narrative that many people knew that amputees were going through um, such hurdles and such barriers just to be at the same level as everyone else. And, you know, I'd get questions from people who would come up to me and say like, hey, can I see your other limbs? you know, your other prosthetics, because they would see stuff on the news and the media. And it was just, you know, really challenging for me to be able to explain to them, like, you know, no, I only get one prosthesis. And even getting that one prosthesis is really difficult. You know, I don't have access to those other things. And that's kind of where this was this wake up call, that there was this injustice happening, and that someone needed to, you know, call it out and, you know, raise awareness on that and, and not settle for uh, how it was at that point, you know, if we really wanted to make a better world for people with disabilities so that these barriers don't exist and that they have equal opportunities to sport, to physical activity, to exercise, that, you know, we need, that I needed to make a change and I needed to, you know, use my voice to uplift others. And so that was really, for me, kind of the driving force behind Forest Stump was this commitment to ending inequality, to ending this injustice, and utilizing my story to help educate others about what was going on. Right. And was everyone really supportive of you when you made the decision um, to leave your job, or did you receive some pushback? Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely received pushback. I mean, it was a it was a huge risk. I mean, I was quitting a great job. Um, you know, sacrificing my financial stability, you know, getting rid of my health insurance, uh, 401k, you know, all of that stuff to go do this, um, you know, trip down the coast. And, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that there was, it wasn't worth it. You know, nothing was going to change. It's just the way it is. They didn't really understand the, you know, the true nature of the injustice. And even at that time, I did not understand the, you know, the deep, uh, and blatant discrimination that was going on. I mean, it, it's so interesting to look back at where I was, you know, three years ago to where I am now. I mean, even when we started off, you know, my good friend Kathleen, who's one of our co-founders uh, initially, you know, said like, you know, let's use the hashtag amputee rights. And I kind of pushed back and was like, oh, is this a rights issue? Like, and now it's like, well, of course, this is a civil rights issue. You know, this is disability rights issue. And so that's been a huge, uh, become a huge part of it. But even at the time, it, you know, the ableism and kind of just the aspects of everyday life and just how it is was a really challenging thing to push through and see, you know, what was really going on. So I definitely received some pushback from part of my family that were concerned for me. Um, but then other parts of my family, you know, that truly embraced me and, you know, especially my mom. I mean, I asked her, hey, would you be willing, you know, to go with us down the coast and to drive a camper? And, you know, she was completely on board. You know, she spent hours upon hours making all the campsite reservations. You know, my dad, my stepdad and my mom, you know, went out and actually bought a camper so that they could, um, you know, use that and we could not have to sleep in tents every night type of thing. And, you know, just completely and totally supportive. Um, so it was amazing. I mean, we had an absolutely incredible support system from the get-go. A lot of donors and people cheering us on. Um, so it's been, you know, amazing to see that support system grow since then and to see so many people who are committed to helping to make a difference and to, ch to changing this. Yeah, that's, that's great. And so 
describe now what the four stump triathlon was that you ultimately accomplished. Yeah. So Kathleen and I had sat down and we were talking about, you know, what could we do to raise awareness? And we were joking about running across the country. And at that point I thought of the film Forrest Gump, which had been, you know, a lifetime favorite film of mine with Tom Hanks. And so we discussed, you know, let's, right. I thought, oh, this would be really funny. What if we named it Forrest Stump, you know, kind of a play on that. Mm -hmm. And it stuck immediately. And so then came the time to try and figure out, you know, where exactly we wanted to do this triathlon. And we decided we wanted to go on the West Coast, the Pacific Coast from Seattle to San Diego. Um, We wanted to do that specifically because we'd hit some pretty big cities. We had some networks and contacts within those cities. Um, It was also, you know, just an absolutely beautiful trip in and of itself. There'd be a lot of elevation. Um, At one point, we were able to get a documentary film on board, and so we, a film crew on board, so we knew that it would be, you know, a very beautiful film that they'd be able to document because of where we were, we were at there. And really, in some sense, the stars really aligned um, in deciding that route um, because of what ended up happening in San Diego when we got there two months uh, later after we started the trip. And we were, you know, we decided we wanted to swim and bike and run. We didn't want it to be just a running event because we wanted to show that in each one of these activities, whether it was swimming or biking or running, that an amputee could utilize or need a different type of prosthesis you know, specifically designed um, to help them with that activity and that none of those are covered by insurance. Um, right. And, you know, we, I was a big fan of triathlon, wanted to make that part of it as well. And it became a really just amazing and fun adventure. That's awesome. So was it, the majority of it was, was cycling, right? Yeah. I imagine. That- it must be to go that, to go that long. Yeah, yeah. To make it in two months, the majority of it was definitely cycling. Um, and so there wasn't as much wear and tear necessarily on my on my leg, which helped a lot from a pain management perspective. Um, but even so, my prosthesis got to the point, you know, halfway through California, um, that it was at the point of breaking. And you know, that was a, a real point at that, at that time, you know, I no longer had health insurance, um, a basic prosthesis cost $15,000, even just to have the foot replaced would cost $5,000. I mean, it's very expensive. And so, you know, doing this trip was a huge risk. Um, and that was coming kind of to fruition as we got into California, um, seeing that the prosthesis was wearing down so much. Um, and that's when, you know, the moment that we got to San Diego was when we were able to meet up with the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And I had only just gotten connected to them a year prior to this. Um, I was at my friend's wedding and one of her family members, uh, husband actually works for the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And so he was there and we got to talking. And I mean, it was really, again, like the stars aligning, you know, that's what my, my first connection to CAF was. Um, they ended up uh, giving me a grant that I was able to apply to this forest stump journey down the coast. And uh, then when they knew that we were going to be there that weekend, um, they just, they started working on a surprise that was, you know, completely, I had no idea that they were working on this. My teammates actually knew what was going on behind the scenes. And so 
that uh, when we cross the finish line and end up coming over to the Challenge Athletes Foundation's um, big events, they do one, you know, really big event a year called the Best Day and Try and uh, in La Jolla um, outside of San Diego. Um, and so I got there, we were having this, you know, incredible event there and they called me up on stage and, you know, I thought I was just going to kind of share some words from the trip and how it was. And that's when they presented me my very first running blade. And, you know, it was just a complete shock and was just overwhelmed with emotion. Um, and the running blade they presented to me was more, you know, figuratively, they were going to be giving me a running blade, not my actual running blade. Uh, because going through the process of making a prosthesis um, is a very intimate process. So you would know if someone's making a prosthesis for you. Um, right. So, but it was just, you know, all the same, um, incredible. And just, I knew that at that moment that my limitation had been lifted. And it was just incredibly emotional for both myself and my mom. Wow, that's amazing. So the stars really, truly did align. You, yeah. So there was, it was the day. It was the day that you that you finished at the same day as that Challenge Athletes Foundation event. It was within a few days, but it, I mean, it was just so weird because we could have chosen, you know, any route, and we had already chosen. Hey, let's go from Seattle to San Diego, and you know, as I was telling people, this was our route. You know, we were maybe a few weeks out from leaving down the coast. You know, I got a call from Doug, who is the family friend of one of my friends at, that I had met him at his wedding. Um, and he said, hey, like, this is our biggest event of the year. You guys are going to be getting there literally a couple days before, you know, you should come to this. And so I was like, wow, I'm like, that's crazy. And so, yeah, it was it, pretty amazing that that all kind of lined up in that way. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, that wouldn't have been a happy ending in that sense. And so, you know, just really grateful to the Challenge Athletes Foundation for what they're doing for the community. You know, they're granting countless, you know, running blades and adaptive sports equipment because of the issue that insurance won't cover it. Um, and at, in the same capacity, I know that because there's so many nonprofits that are out there, and because of what's at the heart of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, one of the important things is to change policy so that individuals with disabilities don't have to rely on charity to be at the same level and to have the same opportunities as everyone else. And so, you know, I applaud all the charities that are out there that are providing access and at the same time say that we need to change policy so that we can impact, you know, millions of people for generations to come. Right. Got it. And what surprised you the most about the whole journey? Oh my gosh. I mean, there are so many aspects of it. Um, I think for me, I wasn't really expecting how it would transform how I felt about myself and, you know, how I viewed myself and going from a place of really not like being very shy about my prosthesis and not wanting people to know about it to being, you know, so confident and so willing to just, you know, have that be part of the conversation as soon as I started talking to someone, you know, Forrest Nump became this, you know, other part of me where I was really confident to talk about it. And I was constantly handing out business cards and networking with people, whether it was, you know, on the street or on the plane, just meeting all kinds of new people and telling them about this event and why we were doing it. And before that, I mean, 
I would never have conversations with other people about my prosthesis unless they, you know, brought it up. But even then it was, you know, something I was very shy about versus to, you know, going to the point where I'm, you know, actively seeking people out to tell them about it. And not only that, but, you know, getting to the Challenge Athletes Foundation's event was really the first time that I met a number you know, significant number of people with disabilities because, you know, growing up, didn't know that many people was not part of that community and getting to San Diego where there was, you know, hundreds of, you know, individuals with amputations and spinal cord injuries, you know, all being active and athletic and kind of being in the same spot as me is, you know, hey, we're all part of this. We want to be athletes too. Um, you know, that was really empowering for me and something I definitely did not expect you know, as part of the journey to really find a new part of myself. Right. And so how many miles did you cover um, like every day while you're on the journey? Yeah, so we, it was really fun to create the journey kind of from scratch and just decide like, hey, where, you know, where do we want to bike one day? Where are we going to run? Um, on average, it was like about 40 to 60 miles of biking. Um, but our first two days, we decided we wanted to follow the Seattle to Portland route, uh, STP, which is a ride that is every year and it's 100 miles back to back. Wow. Um, and so that was, you know, pretty big first two days of yeah. <laughs> these, you know, really long century rides. And then ended up getting to the Columbia River Gorge and we decided. You know, let's swim across the Columbia River. Um, and when we got there, there was actually a, a lot of wildfires that were going on in 2017. This was in September. And so as we started, um, we actually had a uh, scheduled uh, swim, uh, but it ended up getting canceled because of these wildfires. And we only had a few swims scheduled, you know, this one, one in San Francisco and one in San Diego that we didn't want to you know, let it go by. And so we ended up, you know, getting some family and friends with kayaks and stuff and swimming across anyway. I mean, and it was just <laughs> kind of crazy looking back on it and thinking about, you know, the hills are on fire, there's ash coming down. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was a bad, you know, not the best idea to be swimming across, you know, this river at that time, but we were just so determined to hit every single mile, you know, of this 1500 mile journey that, you know, we didn't want to let it go by. So I mean, it was awesome, uh, super fun. And then we ended up getting out to the coast. And on the fifth day, uh, that's when we started kind of averaging the 40 to 60, 60 miles by bike. But on that fifth day, um, it was me, Kathleen, and my partner, Natalie, um, that were doing all the riding and running together. And on that day, Natalie actually, um, you know, we were going downhill, probably 25, 30 miles per hour. She uh, swerved for some reason to miss a pothole of some sort and ended up uh, slamming on her left hand brake accidentally by impulse and doing a complete endo over her bike and separating her shoulder and going to oh, the wow. ER. So that was, you know, you know, we're only five days in we're like, oh my gosh, like, what are we thinking? Like we had already been, um, you know, it was very fast planning to get this thing off the ground. And so we were kind of felt like we were a little bit in over our head. And at that point really felt like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? But, you know, she was able to get back on her bike 10 days later. Um, Kathleen and I just kept going, kept doing the route, uh, just the two of us at that point. 
Um, but day by day, you know, we got stronger, we got fitter, we got into a routine and uh, we were able to, you know, really just kind of keep up with the schedule we had created. And we, we scheduled a number of different other runs too, you know, fun trail runs as we're going down the coast, um, also runs where we could run with other people, uh, kind of organized runs. And then the other big uh, swim was the Shark Fest swim in uh, California going uh, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, which I was the only one doing any swimming out of our group. And so it was kind of something I had to take on on my own um, just because the other two uh, had just kind of learned to swim and, and didn't want to do it. Um, but the Shark Fest swim was something I was kind of nervous about the entire time. And uh, it was that part of it was a, a huge confidence booster as well to do that that swim and jump off the ferry and swim, you know, from the uh, south end of the Golden Gate to the north end in Sausalito, and uh, yeah, it was a and it was an epic journey for sure. That's awesome, and so well, if you had to pick uh, a favorite part, what would be your favorite part of the whole journey? Oh man, I mean, there's just so many aspects and elements to it. Um, one of the really special parts of it was my friends from the University of Michigan, who I had, you know, all met them freshman and sophomore year, and we stuck together until my senior year. They all decided to come out at various points of the journey and do some miles with me. And that just meant, you know, the absolute world to me that they would, would do that, you know, and it, they were you know, they hadn't really trained. And so they'd be joining us on these like epic climbs on a, <laughs> you know, a bike that we had brought along that wasn't a great bike and was having shifting and brake issues. And, you know, they were willing to get on it and put in the miles with us. And, you know, that was just a really special part of it. And that yeah. made me, you know, even more, but I would say if there was one specific event, um, definitely the shark fest swim, uh, was a highlight, uh, for sure. Yeah. And so was the, the, the short film documentary was, was that planned uh, beforehand? It really came together really last minute. Um, so what, I mean, when I ended up quitting my job in July and then we ended, we left in September. So it was a really fast turnaround to plan this whole thing. Um, and then I didn't end up meeting was through after we had announced that we we're going to do this um that i think it was maybe august 1st that we announced this and you know we're leaving in a month type of thing and through our network through kathleen's network she ended up connecting me with another individual who had graduated from u of m uh who had done film and his name's chris and so he ended up chris duncan ended up becoming uh and asking you know hey would love to make a documentary of this to help you guys in your awareness and you know, to help promote Forest Thump. And, you know, immediately we're like, yeah, you know, let's do it. And so they got to work kind of building a crew of their own in a very quick amount of time as well. And then ended up joining us down the coast at various parts. You know, Chris and I sat down and kind of talked about, you know, where do we think would be some beautiful spots? Um, you know, where should he join us uh, to get various aspects for the film? And it just turned out absolutely amazing. So beautiful. You know, Chris did an absolutely uh, fantastic job on it, had an amazing vision on it. Our cinematographer, whose name was Danger, um, who definitely <laughs> um, 
lived up to that name in the various ways of how he was able to get shots of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, did an amazing job. And so our film is, uh, has been going through the film festival circuit over the past year. Uh, was premiered in uh, 12 different film festivals and won a Best Documentary Award, as well as a few others, um, and is now publicly released on our website if people want to watch it. Um, and it's a 17-minute short film. That's awesome. Yeah, and I watched it uh, a couple of days ago, and you know, just oh, want to say, yeah, and just want to say it was probably one of the most moving films, short film, or I guess regular length film uh i've ever i've ever watched so would definitely wow. recommend everyone to to watch it it's it's it it was incredible honestly that means a lot to hear that chase thank you yeah and so after you finish this whole journey do you do you go on and then create the forest dumped nonprofit soon after yeah well you know it was interesting you know when we first started this trip it was kind of a you know like a two-month thing let's go raise awareness on this um and we always had the goal to go to DC. And so that kind of became the next goal, you know, once we got done with the um, triathlon was to take this message to DC and start meeting with members of Congress and talking to them about the issue. And I had really never been to DC before, had never gone to the Hill, had never done any type of lobbying work. And so this was a completely new realm for me. And so we got back in October slash November and end up heading to the Hill um, or to DC and believe it the first time was in March and then went back again in April and started to kind of develop some of these connections. Um, and as a result of that, ended up uh, applying for and receiving a fellowship, an inaugural fellowship to move to DC for 10 weeks and you know learn about healthcare policy and advocacy through the National Association for the Advancement of Orthotics and Prosthetics and kind of really dig into some of the policy issues that are there for the orthotic and prosthetic world. Um, and throughout that, it was a lot of learning, I would say over the past few years about where things are at. And through that process, trying to understand, you know, what other nonprofits exist, is there a gap that is needing to be filled and how can Forest Stump fill that gap? And that's where we really right. realized that there was a need. And so we ended up um, and we were kind of looking at different setups, you know, do we want to be a 501c3, do we want to be a 501c4, you know, looking into various different legal structures, and that's when we decided we wanted to, you know, found as a nonprofit as a 501c3. So we ended up becoming established as a nonprofit in the state of Washington in 2018, and it wasn't until recently that we got our 501c3 status. But yeah, we're now a 501c3 nonprofit, and uh, really has been an incredible journey to meeting various people who've been some amazing, you know, strategic advisors and who have a lot better sense of uh, what's going on in DC and, you know, how we can leverage, you know, their experiences. You know, one of the close people on my team is intimately familiar with the OMP world. Another person, you know, actually worked on the ADA and is a, a disability rights lawyer. So, um, it's been, you know, amazing to kind of, you know, build this from the ground up and kind of realize where are our gaps and how can we, you know, leverage people out there that are passionate about this issue and, and want to help. Yeah, that's, that, that's awesome. And so what is the, what does the 501c3 designation mean for you then? Yeah, I mean, that's, that was a, a huge opportunity for us to become uh, tax exempt um, as okay. a um, so people 
you know, we can work on getting uh, grants uh, from foundations or uh, larger donations from individuals that can then write those off um, for tax purposes. But it really allows us to kind of play at a, at a higher level from a funding perspective. I see. Okay. Yep. And we've, we've touched, I think we've touched on this um, bits and pieces uh, in the interview so far, but like what is, what is, so what is the deal with insurance as it relates to, to prosthetics? Yeah. Um, what I would say is that our, our insurance, um, insurance policies are extremely outdated and do not provide for the level of care or the standard of care that should really be there for individuals with disabilities. And specifically, the policies state that activity-specific prosthetics, activity-specific, uh, let's say, sports wheelchairs or high-activity orthotics, they're all deemed to be not medically necessary, and so they're not covered by insurance. And kind of as I explained earlier, um, one prosthesis, one wheelchair, one orthosis uh, is not enough to replace what the human body human body has lost in functionality. Um, right. We're not at the point where a prosthesis can do everything. And it's very misleading based on what we've seen in the media and how we talk about things. Um, but there really is a need for an activity specific, um, uh, an additional device at least, or I shouldn't say device, but um, you know, various component, whatever you need. Um, so yeah, that's what insurance is, somehow they're allowed to say that it's not medically necessary. They also kind of get around covering a lot of other things by saying, you know, they're investigational or it's a convenience item. That's a big one for waterproof limbs. Uh, waterproof limbs are considered to be a convenience item. And so those huh. are also not covered, which um, if you kind of look at this from a, 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 a broad scheme, of what they're doing by denying these things as investigational, convenience, vanity, not medically necessary. And yet you look at what uh, normal, everyday, able-bodied people take for granted. Um, you know, they, everyone takes for granted their ability to be able to just walk into the shower and not have to worry about having something on that might not be waterproof or being able to go to a lake and, you know, walk in and play with your kids and know that you know, what you're using isn't going to be damaged and it's not going to cost you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and these are kind of decisions that individuals with disabilities are having to make. You know, would I rather pay for my child's education or be able to have a car or be able to put food on the table or uh, have a leg or a limb or whatever it might be? So it's very expensive um, to not have these things covered by insurance. So you know, a regular walking leg is around $15,000. A uh, running blade is around $20,000. A sports wheelchair can be anywhere between two to $6,000. Um, and a high activity orthotic um, can be anywhere between two to $9,000, depending on where you're at. And there's such a, a variety in the cost. And I think a huge thing that we need to recognize is for some part, the, why these things are so expensive is because they're not being covered and we're not able to get the economies of scale that we could if they were more broadly available to the 21 million people in our country that have uh, physical disabilities. I mean, it's a huge population of people that we're not providing access to. And I'm not saying that all 21 million people would, would need access to this, but 
a significant portion of those people are, you know, young and healthy and want to be active, you know, lots of children. And the statistics show that the disability community in general is bearing the brunt of this health disparity, um, where one in two adults um, with physical disabilities get absolutely no aerobic exercise. And we know that not having aerobic exercise and being inactive, you know, leads to early death. I mean, it's literally a death sentence by not uh, mm -hmm. having access to this. Um, and it has so many other impacts, you know, on your physical health, but also mental health and social health as well. And if you look at children with disabilities, you know, they're four times less active than their peers. And kind of what I had explained earlier about some of the issues I had, um, you know, growing up, having my prosthesis break constantly, being sidelined, having to wait for replacements, or just not having a prosthesis that could keep up with me. I mean, that's part of the reason why individuals are not as active as they could be. There's also aspects of it from a community standpoint, even just having a sports system uh, based for you. So if you know, you're in a wheelchair, what does that look like for you in terms of who you compete with? Um, for example, like wheelchair basketball teams. Um, and so that's something that, you know, is, is really important uh, to kind of look into these numbers. Same thing with like obesity, you know, children with disabilities are, uh, have 38% higher obesity rates. Um, so that's the part that as you start looking into these insurance policies and seeing this kind of blatant denial and discrimination against the disability community, um, it becomes, you know, very, um, seeing this injustice becomes, you know, you get really angry, you know, and kind of understanding that this, you know, how can we, it's such a, um, it's, the evidence is so clear of the importance of physical activity that it's somewhat just crazy to think that we haven't gotten to the place where we're providing this. I mean, it's 2020 and we haven't, you know, yet been able to change this for the disability community. And when I say discrimination, I think it's important to understand, you know, why it is such a blatant discrimination. And you start looking at um, insurance companies who, you know, every single major insurance company, whether it's Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Kaiser Permanente, Aetna, uh, Primera, they all sponsor marathons, half marathons, you know, they encourage their subscribers to get active, to get healthy, to run. I mean, they are telling them that it's, it's necessary that they should do this and they're putting their money behind it. Yet at the same time, their policies tell people with disabilities that they shouldn't run and that it's not necessary for them. Um, which is uh, one component of this blatant discrimination and how they use, actually, many insurance companies are using people with disabilities to promote their companies. And one in particular is Cigna, who uh, sponsors a Disney World Marathon every weekend in this past year. They brought together a bunch of people with disabilities as well as their employees and had their employees run side by side with individuals with disabilities took a bunch of pictures. And, and when I say this, they're having people uh, that have disabilities that are using, you know, running blades, that are using sports wheelchairs, uh, such as push rim or hand cycle wheelchairs to be able to complete the marathon. They're running next to these people and saying, you know, what their company is doing to provide healthcare for all. Yet their specific policies restrict access to those technologies that these people need in order to actually do the marathon. 
So for a lot of these people, they might be military and so they're able to get access that way or they um, have access to charities or to grants. But if they're on Cigna's policy, there's no way that they can actually run the race with Cigna. And so that's the kind of discrimination and injustice that gets me fired up and wanting to push forward and to make change on this. And I think it's also really important to recognize how our healthcare system treats people um, that are assumedly able-bodied um, when they have an injury that prevents them from being physically active. And the way that our system is set up is if someone has an injury like an ACL tear or a UCL tear or you know any kind of injury that prevents someone from being physically active or running or playing basketball, those people can go to their doctor and get the treatment they need. They can go in and they can have ACL repair surgery. Uh, and these surgeries are not cheap. They're even more expensive than what it costs uh, for some of these things like sports wheelchairs or orthotics or even prosthetics. They're more expensive and they're very, very common. Over 150,000 uh, ACL surgeries happen every year that total over $5 million uh, that people are having to that are that is part of our healthcare system. So, I mean, it's a significant uh, portion uh, that's being you know put into these kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, for someone who has a physical disability, they are not able to get the necessary medical treatment they need uh, to be physically active. Right. Geez. So, so when you ask the question, um, like to these people, why? activity specific prosthetics aren't covered by insurance? Like what are the answers that they're giving you? Um, yeah, right. So when speaking to, you know, healthcare plans, uh, insurance companies, you know, oftentimes the, the view of it is that it's a luxury, that running is a luxury and that they can get away with um, not providing this for individuals. And this is something that we see this luxury term uh, used against con uh, countless marginalized communities where um, a basic human rights, a basic access for one group of people is considered a luxury, while for this other group of people uh, it is uh, not only taken for granted, but it is provided on many different levels from not only investment by health insurance companies, like I mentioned, you know, covering surgeries for people who want to get back to being active, who want to run again, um, to just our sports system in general, that the funding that goes into, you know, I would say able-bodied sports or the sports that are um, out there. And it's, it's interesting because for disability, there's often this idea that if you have a disability, you are less than, and that disabled sports are less than other types of sports. And that's really not the case. And I think that's what the Paralympic movement is really proving, is that these are just different sports uh, that require different skill sets and different strengths. I mean, the athletes are just as capable and just as strong as any other athlete. You know, you watch people play wheelchair basketball, um, you watch sled hockey. I mean, these are incredible athletes playing really fun and unique sports that are, you know, no better, no less than any other sport. It's just different. But what it comes down to is the amount of funding and the amount of investment that go into these sports. And so if you have, you know, one sport that's getting, you know, uh, countless investments in it, 
versus another, of course, you know, one team is going to be more successful than another. And so if you kind of look at things from a um, kind of historical perspective in relation to sport and kind of marginalized communities, one in particular would be kind of women and access to sports um, and what Title IX was able to do for women, you know, prior to Title IX, you know, many women were, uh, you know, never had the opportunity to play sports. You know, I talked to my mom about this and, you know, in her school, her high school, you know, never was able to have access to uh, playing on a high school sports team. And now because of Title IX and because of enforcement of kind of equal investments, um, we've seen a huge growth in women having access to sport. Um, since 1972, there's been a 545% increase in women in playing sports in college and a 990% increase for women playing sports in high school. I mean, huge. And so if we were to see something similar to that happen to the disability community, I think it right. would be absolutely incredible. And that's part of what I've found over the past year, kind of getting into para sports, uh, competing in paratriathlon, the competition is so low. I mean, there's just, there's just not very many people at all that you that are in this and that's because of such a low investment and also some of these other barriers that we talked about in terms of getting access to the equipment too. Um, so I kind of went on a tangent there in terms of, you know, what insurance companies say in response to this, but yeah, I would say that their argument against it is very shallow and I feel like our argument for it uh, is very deep and can really prove why uh, individuals need access to this. Um, really, it's they it's kind of blatant discrimination. And the more that we can also make the argument from a cost benefit analysis and showing that having access to physical activity exercise will actually reduce healthcare costs in the long run. Um, will be part of our argument. In addition to that, there's also studies that show the connection between employment and access to sport, specifically for the disability community, which has been historically, um, has had historically low employment rates. And for example, for individuals who use wheelchairs, um, for some, on average, 18% employed for that, but when they play sports like wheelchair basketball over the course of 10 years, um, that number increases to 58%. So a huge increase um, in uh, employment rates because of things like self-confidence and learning different teamwork skills. And right. a lot of those things were at the heart of, you know, Title IX. So yeah, there's, I would say that the insurance lobby has a lot of money, has a lot of um, power, um, but uh, it can't uh, deny the facts and the research that we're being able to present as part of this. Right, right. And so what is the, the new campaign that you recently launched called the hashtag we just felt like running? <laughs> and why did you decide to launch it now? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we just felt like running is uh, another play on our kind of forest uh, stump uh, aspect of the, the organization, um, but really playing on that to show kind of the privilege that comes with that statement of being able to just go out and, you know, run, you know, countless marathons across the country um, with no barriers to that. Um, you know, if Forrest Gump had been an individual with a disability, although he was born with a disability, but if he had had one later on in life, you know, whether it was an amputation or being in a wheelchair, um, 
that, you know, would he have had what he needed to complete that, you know, epic American quest and that that access and the opportunity to do something like that isn't being provided um, to the, our community. You know, our community wants to be able to go out running too. We feel like running too, but uh, to be able to get to that point to go out the front door is not often the case for us because of the significant barriers we face. And kind of the uh, precipice for this, I, I would say like immediately after our journey down the coast, you know, it had always been in the back of our mind to do, uh, a, to actually race across the country and to, um, it had been a dream of mine to be joined by other individuals with disabilities uh, to do that race. And with COVID-19, things have definitely made us creative. Um, this, we were planning on doing uh, Hood to Coast, which is um, a race out here in the Seattle uh, area, uh, Portland actually area, uh, but it ended up getting canceled due to COVID. And so the team that we had developed, uh, had put together, would have been one of the all, you know, one of the first all physically challenged teams to complete Hood to Coast, which is this huge event of over you know, 12,000 runners and, you know, individuals with disabilities would have made up less than 1%. And we wanted to show why that number is so low and what the barriers are for us to even getting to the starting line that so many other people don't have to face. Um, but that race was canceled, obviously, due to COVID. And so we decided, you know, let's still make something positive out of this situation. Let's do something, you know, in a sense, even bigger and bolder than that. And so that's when we launched and kind of thought about this. Uh, we just felt like running campaign, um, thinking about, okay, if we can't physically run across the country, let's do it virtually and let's bring our community together to do it. So the idea of we just felt like running is a one day virtual race across the US from Seattle to Washington DC, a total of 2,758 miles. And I know it's that many miles because I planned out the route myself on Strava and are asking the community to uh, sign up and um, pledge uh, any type of miles. It can be running, biking, swimming, you know, as Heidi told me, pogo sticking across the country um, and, you know, any amount of miles as well. But the goal is to show that, you know, no one person can run across the country on their own in one day. It really takes a community and what we're doing as part of that is delivering a petition to Congress, kind of racing it across the country. And this petition specifically uh, is going to Congress, to insurance commissioners, to healthcare providers, um, telling them to uphold the uh, rights of Americans with disabilities to exercise and what was promised in the ADA. And so we launched it the week of the celebration of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and it, the campaign is going until um, October 3rd, which will be the day of the race. Oh, that's, that's really cool. So what, is, what does success look like for this campaign? Yeah, right now we don't obviously have any specific piece of legislation. Uh, and as a nonprofit, as a 501c nonprofit, our goal is to educate uh, Congress on the issue. And really right now it's starting off at a very... We're, we're starting the dialogue. We're challenging the current narrative of uh, this kind of luxury aspect or this idea that um, physical activity is a luxury for the disability population when it's not a luxury uh, for everyone else that is able to have access to it. 
and really building a foundation of a coalition of organizations and people who are committed to this issue. Um, so for us right now, I mean, we've got a, a small goal of 5,000 uh, uh, signatures on our petition with a stretch goal of getting it to at least a 20,000. And so we're gonna need everyone and anyone to you know, help us to sign on to that petition to help us get to that level that will really be kind of that mark that when we bring it to Congress looks like a substantial you know, national campaign. Um, and we also have a goal of 500 racers uh, joining us on October 3rd. And we've got lots of different uh, promo codes as well that have been sponsored by some generous supporters to make it more accessible uh, to individuals with disabilities, as well as individuals in the BIPOC community and, uh, and anyone that's been uh, financially impacted by COVID-19. And you can find those promo codes on our uh, Eventbrite signup page, uh, which we'll make sure we send out all the links to that. Um, but yeah, the big thing is, is getting as many people as we can to sign that petition to help us raise up our voice um, and then use that information to start having, you know, this increased dialogue and building the foundation for future policy change. That's awesome. And so getting into these last few questions here, um, let's say we meet again in, in 10 years. What would you have wanted to accomplish as it relates to Forrest Stump, athletically or otherwise? Yeah, um, within 10 years, I think it's a reasonable and achievable goal that we will have uh, been able to make a some type of policy change that has expanded access to the assistive technology and habilitative care that individuals with disabilities need to exercise. I think it's very reasonable to think that we can we can do that, especially if we have a community behind us. And I think the more that people learn about this, the more that we are able to get the message out. A lot of people don't even realize that this is an issue for our community. And when they do realize right. it, they want to support it and provide yeah. you know, equal access. And so you know, if we can get our community behind us, I think it's very reasonable that we can achieve that goal. Um, and I mean, that will have, you know, kind of the numbers I shared about like 500% increases, 900% increases. I know that if something like this were to be passed, we would be able to uh, significantly increase uh, individuals with disabilities access to sports and being able to be uh, physically fit and athletic um, and just overall healthy and um, independent people. So that's, you know, my primary goal, you know, from the get-go, I wanted to make sure that other people had access to this. It wasn't just about me getting a running blade and, you know, someone at one point had kind of, you know, you had asked about where there, was there anyone that pushed back, you know, someone said, well, why are you doing this? Why don't you just, you know, raise the money and buy yourself a, you know, a running blade. And, you know, that's not what this is about. This is about systemic change and paying it forward and making sure that other people have access to what they need. And, you know, knowing what I went through and kind of the, the um, inequalities, that's what drives me forward for other people to make sure that no one else has to go through that and that they can have access to what they need to have the same opportunities as everyone else. Right. And so, so what does your uh, daily routine look like these days? Um, and let's go pre-pandemic, actually. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. Because with COVID, things have been um, somewhat crazy. But yeah, I mean, wow, with COVID, things have really changed up my daily routine. But prior to this, 
you know, I was um, training intensely and competing as part of uh, USA paratriathlon and the sport of triathlon. Um, so I have, you know, two a day workouts and then combined with, uh, you know, being on the phone, talking to people, writing up emails, um, doing various types of research related to, you know, some of the policy work that we're doing um, to traveling, you know, across the country. I was traveling constantly at least twice a month um, to various states um, at different conferences, having presentations, speaking to people, um, and really kind of hosting these dialogues and, and getting the word out. And with COVID, things have drastically changed. I, you know, I'm not training as intensely as I was before. All of uh, competitions have been canceled. There's no more travel involved. And so we're having to find ways to, you know, be unique uh, and be creative in this environment, uh, especially from a speaking perspective. You know, there's no more in-person events going on. So how can we get the word out um, and uh, get people, you know, knowing about this cause and to take action. So that's part of why we're so excited about this campaign um, and have been really excited about the, um, you know, the reception that it's had so far. Yeah. And so as is the, the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Yeah, I think it's, hmm. I mean, if I look at kind of throughout the course of my life, what has driven me is just this level of wanting to achieve and to be better the next day than I was the day before. Um, and also in relation to Forrest Gump is this kind of commitment to people and to equality and to justice. And that's really what drives me forward and gets me up every day wanting to make a difference for others. Awesome. And, uh, and lastly here, before we wrap up, what words of motivation or wisdom would you like to leave the person listening who is thinking about running their first 5K, 10K marathon or whatever it might be? but isn't sure if they have it in them to do it. Yeah, definitely. My advice to them and what is kind of my mantra when I'm unsure about or scared to do something is just telling myself, start before you're ready. And I just love that because I think oftentimes we feel like we have to be at a certain level, a certain physical fitness. We have to look a certain way you know, all these, you know, preconceived notions about what it means to be a 5k runner or a marathon runner and, or even to do a 1500 mile trek down the coast. And what really helped us going down the journey was this mantra of start before you're ready. Because if we had uh, thought about, you know, do we have all of our ducks in a row and everything prepared, we definitely wouldn't have done, you know, this epic journey and to help kind of raise awareness. Um, and so that's, that mantra is really what pushes forward to be comfortable with, you know, just pushing ourselves and uh, saying that, you know, no matter where I'm at right now, that's okay. I'm going to start and I know I'm going to improve and I'm going to consistently, you know, get better over time. So, you know, for someone out there who's, you know, listening to this and might be a little bit scared to start a 5k or a 10k, you know, I've been in your shoes, you know, standing, I can think about it, you know, in terms of standing on the edge of that ferry about to jump off into the, the bay as part of the shark fest swim. You know, I was scared to make that leap. But at the end of the day, you've got support system, you've got people behind you. And most of all, as long as you believe in yourself, you know, you can do that. So 
you know, use that mantra to push yourself forward, you know, start before you're ready and, and keep going. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Nicole, thanks again for coming on the show. This was, this was really great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me as well. Thanks so much, Chase. Appreciate you having me on. Where can people go if they want to learn more about what you're up to and how to get involved in Forest Stump? Definitely head to our website. It's www.forreststump.org, two R's and forest. And you can find everything you need on our website from signing up uh, on our race, uh, for our race, to signing our petition, to watching our film, uh, subscribing for a newsletter, or just getting involved in other ways. Uh, there's lots of information on there and we'd love for you to visit and take part in what we're doing. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserza.com, to learn more about my coaching services and follow me on Instagram at chaserza4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.